This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is We Do This Till We Free Us, Abolitionist Organizing and Transforming Justice by Maryam Kaba. What if ordinary people have the power to collectively free ourselves? In this timely collection of essays and interviews, Maryam Kaba reflects on the deep work of abolition and transformative political struggle. With a foreword by Naomi Murakawa and a chapter on seeking justice beyond the punishment system, transforming how we deal with harm and accountability, and finding hope in collective struggle for abolition, Kaba's work is deeply rooted in the relentless belief that we can fundamentally change the world. As Kaba writes, nothing that we do that is worthwhile is done alone. As Eve Ewing says of the book, I want to say this is a generation-defining book, but that feels wrong because I know it will be shaping political imaginations for a century or more. It's generations-defining. This is a classic in the vein of Sister Outsider, a book that will spark countless radical imaginations. We do this till we free us, Abolitionist Organizing and Transforming Justice, by Mary M. Kaba, out now from Haymarket Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is an interview about the state of the U.S. left reflecting on the question of and debates around ultra-leftism that have emerged big time since Bernie 2020. In particular, we're thinking through two works, one very recent and one kind of old. First, the liberal-to-ultra-left pipeline— Breaking the Cycle, which was recently published in The Washington Socialist by Brian W. Then a classic, Liberalism, Ultra-Leftism, or Mass Action, a speech delivered by Socialist Workers' Party leader Peter Camejo to the Young Socialist Alliance in New York City on June 14, 1970. My guests are Femi Taiwo, Mindy Iser, and Zachary Hirschman, all talented organizers and thinkers who each reflect upon their own personal political biographies in this interview. The critiques that they make are made in good faith, though I'm sure some of you will disagree with things here or there, and I'm sure that I will hear about it on Twitter, which is fine and well. Before we get this episode started, please do support this podcast if you do not already and can afford to do so at patreon.com slash the dig. It's a website that allows you to make monthly contributions to things that you like, like this podcast, to make sure that things like this podcast continue to exist into the future. Your contributions are why this entire podcast is possible. Book advertising helps some, and we appreciate our sponsors, but it's really the Patreon support that allows me to do this for a living and to pay people who help put this pod out every week and to put everything out with no paywall so that everyone, regardless of their ability to pay, can listen. And the way that works is that those of you who can afford to contribute do so. So if you haven't done it yet, please contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. We also, if you contribute enough to make the shipping cost effective, we have left-wing books and dig tote bags and mugs to send you as a thank you. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. 
Thank you. And here's Femi Taiwo, Mindy Iser, and Zachary Hirschman. Femi Taiwo is a professor of philosophy at Georgetown University, where he focuses on social political philosophy and ethics. Mindy Iser is an organizer in the labor movement and a member of DSA's Democratic Socialist Labor Commission Steering Committee. Zachary Hirschman is an organizer in Pennsylvania and a member of Put People First PA. Femi Taiwo, Mindy Iser, and Zach Hirschman, welcome to The Dig. And Femi, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. To start out, how would you define ultra-leftism? And then is it a useful category, or as some would suggest, is it just a derogatory term that socialists call people who they think are wrong? I think there's a difference between being wrong and ultra-left. So I do think it's useful. And I think what Brian W. wrote in the liberal to ultra-left pipeline piece, it is one of those things where you sort of know it when you see it, and it is often difficult to explain. But I guess that's why we're here. Femi, Zach? I think it's both just a derogatory term that leftists use. Describe people who are wrong in a certain way, right? I think Mindy's right. But who they think are wrong in a certain way, and that makes it useful. I would I would push back a little against Brian's kind of phrasing of we know it when we see it, only because I think we can do a little better. And I definitely agree with my comrades here that like ultra leftism is a derogatory term, but it's also a specific diagnosis. And I think it's a diagnosis of a specific type of disjuncture, a disconnect in the relationship between your politics and program and the material conditions and the political development of the specific social base that you're referring to. And it becomes this like derogatory when we use it in a non-specific manner, right? And I think it can be productive if we use it to like diagnose and identify exactly what type of disjuncture is going on. And so, Zach, to be more specific about that is the disjuncture between where ultra-leftists say they want to go and their plan of how to get there? Yeah, precisely. I think it's a disjuncture in process, not in goals. It's also, there oftentimes is no practice. Like, there is there is just goals or there's just ideas. And there's there's nothing that leads to those goals or there's nothing that gets you there. There's no work that's being done. It's just like having an idea, putting out, putting it out into the world, and then that being the extent of your politics and your political activity, which is no activity. Femi? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm on that team. You know, I think when I try to explain it to myself in my head, you know, I think at bottom ultra leftists are just doing a different thing than I'm doing. You know, I've, I've actually had an interaction, something like this, where, you know, I was looking in the fridge and I was like, Oh, you know, I can make this kind of sandwich or I can make this kind of sandwich. And then my friend was like, Oh, you know, here's what the best sandwich in the world would be. You know, we'd have Wagyu beef and we have brioche and we'd have whatever this and that. And I'm like, all right, cool but (laughs) we've only got wheat bread in the fridge so like i don't know what conversation you think we're having right now 
you're talking about the ideal sandwich. I'm talking about lunch today. And I, I think it's that kind of disconnect, right? People are just answering a different question and responding to a different set of political circumstances than leftists should be responding to. And, and that's, the, that's the derogatoriness or of, of, of the term ultra-leftism. Like, that's, what's, that's what people are being accused of doing. Whether that's right or not, obviously, is going to depend on, you know, who we're talking to or whatever and who we're talking about. But I think that's what ultra-leftism is. That's a really good um, idealism versus materialism analogy. And I think I'm definitely going to use that moving forward as someone who loves sandwiches a lot and thinks about sandwiches and politics a lot. I'm going to be using that. I have two Philadelphians on the call, so naturally— Zach, is part of the disjuncture people not realizing that they're answering a different question, as Femi phrased it? Yeah, I definitely agree with Femi and Mindy's formulation. And I really like the way Mindy put it. There's not just to like rephrase, but like there's no there there without actually having a practice, a political program, an organization that's implementing and testing. You actually have no basis to determine whether your politics are ultra leftist or not. And so without doing that kind of practical work, it just becomes this like free floating signifier, right? Where someone's talking about, oh, what are my favorite sandwiches? And like Femi said, that's just simply not the conversation we're trying to have in this kitchen. What do you all make of Peter Camejo a few decades back and Brian W. more recently? Both of their assessments that what we're seeing is a liberal to ultra left pipeline, that there's something about the trauma of breaking with liberalism that leads to radicalization taking place in a particular kind of way. I mean, I think this happens to everyone or at least a lot of people. It was definitely my trajectory, 100 percent. And I feel like especially with online and Twitter, it's so obvious you can see you can like chart it like all these people who are like. K-hivers or like similar who like become extremely ultra in like the span of 12 months and you just like watch it unfold and then you're like at least me I'm like okay well in like a year or two they'll be like they'll join DSA and become like normal and have good politics at least that's kind of what happened to me so I assume that's like a potential trajectory for everyone who goes from like liberal to ultra although I know there are people who are like ultra forever. I would say I definitely agree with Mindy um, that there's like a development process of politicization that everybody goes through. And I know for me as well, there was an ultra left stage in that process that I had to go through. And I think there's psychological pieces there that I don't fully understand about like trauma and grief and dealing with loss and dealing with failure on kind of the movement and the society wide level. But I also believe that the liberal to ultra left pipeline exists because of some like pretty significant material historical circumstances that have constructed it and constructed kind of the way it appears in this era. And the two big kind of aspects of that that jump out for me are the first is state repression. I think the decimation of left movements in this country uh, starting with anti-communism through McCarthyism, the attacks on labor, uh, the attacks on the Black Liberation Movement and the civil rights organizations of the 60s and 70s, the amount of skill 
political knowledge, the, the institutions themselves, the experience, the leadership and the leaders, the loss that we have experienced as a left, I think is incalculable and so hard to grapple with. And I think that causes real consequences for our political development as a class. And I think the other kind of historical trend here is, I don't know what you would call maybe like NGOification, right? Or the nonprofit industrial complex, where what were formerly union roles taken up by unions and social movement organizations have, and this is a critique that, you know, I'm sure we're all pretty familiar with, have been replaced by nonprofit organizations. So traditionally, political organizations would have, you know, layers, visible leadership, and then an entire middle layer of cadre, you know, trained, politically developed organizers and coordinators who execute the organization's political program, uh, an active membership rooted in a specific social base. But, you know, while state oppression attacked, uh, state repression attacked many of our most politically advanced organizations head on, I feel like NGOification in a much more kind of insidious way has replaced that entire middle strata, that middle layer of organizers and cadre and leadership that we had built over generations with a small number of contingent, comparatively short-term paid staff with the obvious you know, conclusion that now instead of developing our social base into members and leaders and expanding our, the organizations of our class, everybody is trapped in you know, balkanized email list passive until they're like waiting to be mobilized, right? And I think the consequence of that is that the backstop against ultra leftism has been shredded over time. And the institutions that would catch people as they begin their politicization and say, hey, there's a process, there's a history, there's a tradition, so many traditions that like you can learn from and be a part of, that no longer exists. And so that plus like social atomization and people are just out in the wilderness, totally atomized, totally alienated without the support that they need. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that, that last point. There's probably something to the, the trauma deal, but I think the kind of organizational difference that the global war on the left that was part and parcel of the Cold War. I mean, I think I think you could start and end the explanation there. And and I like the way it was put in terms of, you know, what the backstop would be, right? Because, you know, you might start off as a liberal and then, you know, find leftist ideas and get really excited about them. You know, your your Lukash talks about something like this in the preface to um, the 1968, I want to say, edition of History and Class Consciousness. He's like, oh, I read all this Hegel and I learned whatever dialectic means. And it was really cool for a while. And then I joined the Communist Party and I had to actually do stuff. Right. And it turned out that, like, you know, having an opinion on Geist didn't answer practical questions or didn't entirely answer practical questions. I mean, I get in trouble here with Geist fans, but, but, you know, like it's, it's not just the having the history and the traditions available to you, though that's important, but it's actually having the practical positions of being able to do something with left politics other than fight for clout on Twitter or whatever it is 
through an organization, through practice, through actually doing politics. And when that goes away, then I actually think what's happening, you know, it might be a traumatic break with some ideas, but the liberal to left pipeline in my head is more characterizable in terms of what hasn't gone away, right? Which is we get socialized into this entirely fictitious kind of religious relationship with capital and in the United States with the nation state as well. You know, we just trade one God for another, religiously worship some other set of ideas because we haven't challenged that basic way of relating to politics, even though we've stopped being liberals. I think, I think that's more often in, to my eyes, what I see people doing, you know, they start off thinking, Oh, it's about patriotism and this country is great and elections are great. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to save everybody. And then they get violently disrupted from that. And they're like, Oh, well, who's the person who's going to save everyone? Oh, it's daddy Marks. Right. It's like, well, no, it's us with these hands and these organizations. And unless you're in a context to use knowledge in that way, you won't come to that conclusion. Totally. I feel that so, so strongly. And I really think, I mean, I'll I'll probably talk about this a lot, but I, I really think Twitter has made all of this so much worse because like Femi's saying, you go from like thinking like, oh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, like you have like a yes queen shirt on, like a yes queen Ruth Bader Ginsburg shirt on. And then you're like, oh, wait, this is fucked up. Whatever happens in your life that makes you realize this, you're like, oh, okay, I support Medicare for all and a Green New Deal. I I want these things. I I want society to be society society to be different. But nothing in your theory of how we get those things actually change. So you go from like liking Ruth Bader Ginsburg to like going on Twitter, which can be a really amazing resource to seeing someone who has like 100,000 followers, who's constantly tweeting, who says these like pithy things that you're like, yes, this queen now. And you're like retweeting and you're like a stan or whatever. And then you're just like waiting for them to tell you what to do. So if they're like, okay, we're forcing the vote, you're like, okay, we're forcing the vote. And that's no shade to anyone who's a force the vote supporter, but just this exact theory where you are just looking to someone to tell you what to do, and then you're not even really doing it. You're just like reposting it. And I think something to like what Zach was saying was something I feel really strongly, and I don't know if others feel this, is that I think people who are my age or close to it, I'm 30, we don't have a lot of like movement elders around still who have been through serious state repression who have been through some of these really, really big struggles to teach us some of the things that they've learned. And of course, there's things we can read and study, but it's really not the same as having those real relationships where you can like actually learn from people who live in the same place as you who have gone through some of these struggles before. So we know like what to and what not to like recreate and reproduce. Yeah, that reminds me of my interview with Max Elbaum about his book, Revolution in the Air. And he's doing a great job of trying to be a movement elder to this newest new left now. But his book about the new communist movement of the of the 70s and 80s is a lot of the, the problems and ultraism and errors that that movement fell into, he argues, were precisely because of the way the Cold War and McCarthyism and everything severed the sort of continuity that might have existed between the old left and the new left and thus helped the new left not repeat some of the mistakes of the old left. 
I think Kameo's most interesting passage on how liberalism transmorgifies into ultra-leftism is this one. He writes, quote, or he said, this was a speech, he says, quote, Now, basically, an ultra-left is a liberal that has gone through an evolution. What happens is this. They start out as liberals, and suddenly the war in Vietnam comes along. Now, what does a liberal believe? He believes that the ruling class is basically responsive to his needs. So he demonstrates. You know, in the beginning when the anti-war movement first started, there were very few ultra-leftists. Most of the ultra-leftist leaders of today were people who were organizing legal, peaceful demonstrations back around 1965. But after they called a few demonstrations against the war, they noticed something was wrong. The ruling class was not being responsive. Not only that, they understood for the first time that the U.S. was literally massacring the Vietnamese people. This frightened them. It was as if you all of a sudden found out that your father was really the Boston Strangler. That's what it was like for these people. They were liberals who believed that Johnson was better than Goldwater, who had worked and voted for him, only to find out that he was the Boston Strangler. What do you make of that analysis, that ultra-leftism is caused by that, that whiplash? of quite suddenly discovering that a system, that even if one had criticisms of it, that there was a basic sort of trust in that system and its responsiveness that was suddenly destroyed as that system was exposed as just a force for murderous violence here and everywhere. I just think it's it comes at least in part from this idea that if you get the right, that it's a person, it's an interpersonal thing. Like, if you replace, it's like the same thing with Trump and Biden. If you replace, like all the people who were up in arms with the about the babies at the border, which is a very reasonable thing to be extremely upset about under Trump, they're like, okay, we got to get rid of Trump. We got to get rid of Trump. Okay, we have Biden. We still have babies at the border. And then suddenly there's like silence. And it's because people aren't thinking about the conditions that created children being at the border. They're not thinking about the actual differences between the Republicans and the Democrats, they're thinking like, oh, Trump is a disgusting racist asshole, which is 100% true. And Biden is like a nice man who like has dogs. And like that, which is, it's extremely upsetting, I think for us, because it's like, oh my God, like you are so fucking stupid or just like blind or whatever. But really it's like people who don't believe that people like us have the power to change the world, which is unfortunately a lot of people. And it's people in our class as well who really believe that we don't have the power to change the world are always going to be looking to one or a few people to do that for us. And so you, you're thinking, oh, okay, Biden is saying all these things. He's nice. He's nice. He's good. Whatever that means. Like, it's, com- it's, not, it's not actually relevant to politics or how we do politics, but for the people who are watching or, like, consuming this, that's, that's what they see and that's how they see it. They don't see themselves as political actors. They see themselves as the people who are watching these things happen and are clicking the right thing, retweeting the right thing, hitting the right voting button, whatever, in the ballot box— to ensure that things change. And that's that's the extent of it. And that's what a liberal would say about the difference between Biden and Trump, right? But then what does it help 
in Camejo's framing, does it help us understand where ultra leftists ultra leftists come from to think about what happens when that liberal who thinks that Biden is this like fundamental personal difference that matters between in comparison to Trump when when that person comes to the sudden realization that Joe Biden is the Boston Strangler? I feel like the most salient piece there for me in Camejo is that next step after you realize Biden is the Boston Strangler. And I think Mindy lifts this up really well, which is like, even after these series of disappointments, it still doesn't fundamentally challenge their orientation to the ruling class. I think Camejo does a good job of outlining it. Fundamentally, even after you step away from Biden, uh, and Camejo describes like, they're like, okay, well, the good government isn't good after all. So what we're going to do is go ultra and start bombing them. Or if you're an SR after the, you know, 1905 revolution in Russia, you're like, all right, well, that revolution didn't go far enough. So we're just going to start shooting people. And it's because their orientation isn't like Mindy laid out. They have no belief in the power of us as regular people to take hold of this society and change it. Fundamentally, they're still oriented to the ruling class as the actor who can bring about the change they want. And so all their tactics and all their kind of political engagement is centered around influencing either identifying divisions within the ruling class, influencing the few marginal members of the ruling class apparatus who we think might be sympathetic, or just terrorizing and scaring the ruling class into doing what we want. Not that there isn't a place, I'm sure, for terrorizing and scaring the ruling class into doing what what we want, but clearly the way to do that is not via Twitter, but through an organized, right, working class majority. And they don't see that, I think, ever entering the political stage as an actor. Femi? Yeah, I guess this is, um, the point that occurs to me to say is not um, so much an answer to this question, but one thing that seems to me to be different about the people of the 60s and 70s left, and even I think through the 80s, that strikes me as different about the left today is that the way that stakes are understood in today's left seems really different from then because then it was visceral and it was interpersonal and it was, you know, there wasn't a lot of, you didn't need a takes industry to understand what your relationship was to violent structures around you. Like freedom riders got shot. A significant percentage of people were drafted by the United States government into, you know, this genocidal war over in Vietnam. And with the, you know, post-neoliberalism, with all the illusions of choice around us, I don't think stakes are understood in the same way. And so, you know, when I hear a description of some of someone going from being a liberal to a leftist in the 60s, right, against the backdrop of hundreds of race riots and Vietnam and desegregation in the South. I just hear a different thing than, you know, I, I, I think this is different today where it's like, I don't actually, I all bets are off in terms of 
what liberals becoming ultra leftists think is in it for them. I, I don't know what they think is in it for them, right? Like, I, I at least, you know, I can tell the story Zach told and be like, okay, if you're doing that in the 60s, it's because you think, like, this is going to stop the war, this is going to get us control of this or that, and I can tell a coherent story about how that would relate to something I understand and I experience and that's part of my life. And I don't know that we even have stories that coherent anymore at this, you know, in 2021, right? Maybe we do, but I don't know. Well, I think that's why the Bernie campaign was so important and powerful and like not to sound like a Bernie bro or like, I think that's all we had although sometimes I do feel that way. I do feel like it cohered so many people, so many different kinds of leftists and socialists and even progressives, whatever that word means, into this thing. Like, I felt like we were all, like, soldiers in an army. I mean, not to sound, like, extra, but I really, I saw myself as a soldier for Bernie. I was like, okay, I'm going on my Bernie journey. I'm doing the door knocking. I'm making the calls. Like, this is my task right now. Like, I have to do whatever I have to do to make this happen. And I know thousands of people around the country felt that way. And we were all looking towards this one thing. We all had this one goal. Of course, we have so many different orientations, perspectives, differences. But it was like cohering us and pushing us forward. And then without that, it's like... We're in an extremely depressing time for a variety of reasons. And I do think there's something to be said. And Femi, I'm not sure if this is exactly what you meant, but like being like the privilege, which I hate that word, but whatever, of being like in the imperial core and like having all these different kinds of choices and access to things, which does make you feel like, eh, I'll just keep sitting here for a while longer. You know, like it, there's less... The stakes, in a way, for some people, and I don't want to paint with a, a broad brush, are less obvious, I think. There's a lot here to get into. One, in terms of what you said, Femi, is just the comparison between then and now. And then I want to get into to Bernie, what you were talking about, Mindy. Then, you know, there was like a reform versus revolution debate where some people you know, perhaps wrongheadedly, we're going underground, like for real. In retrospect, you can look back and see a context of global third world revolution, the U.S. meeting fierce resi armed resistance in Vietnam. And one can look back and understand how it made sense. If one watches the documentary Weather about the weather underground, one is wincing while it's happening because you, you see that mistakes are being made. But one gets at least I watching it, could see how I could have made the same choices at the time. But today, weirdly, the revolution versus reform debate is taking place among leftists who are all, in fact, pursuing social democratic demands. There are no doubt tankies out there, and I am curious what you all think of that phenomenon too. But what we're seeing in terms of ultra-leftism today is more an ultra-approach to social democratic demands, things that we would all love to see like Medicare for all. What do you make of that, the sort of weird way that the revolution reform debate is playing out within people who at least implicitly agree that what we're after in the short term is social democratic demands. There's a lot of, um, I'll, I'll just open the bidding with this. I, I think there's a lot of, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of nostalgia for past moments of revolutionary history and violence 
you know, I mean, first off, I think revolutions, um, for the most part, are a lot less cool than they're remembered as. But you can at least see, you know, there are things that you won't win except by that method. So I at least get why they're respected, but the nostalgia for them strikes me as a little weird. But, you know, even setting that aside, I think a basic thing people are doing is trying to imitate the actions of the past, or not even the actions, really the aesthetic of actions of past movements without an analysis or any seriousness around what circumstances made those actions possible or worth doing, right? And, and what I like about the way that you put it, right, is that, like, look, we can, we can sit all day and say, you know, Black Panther should have done this, Weather Underground should have done this, but at the time, there was an ongoing, active, global shooting war about what the global system was going to be like. And there were, there were nation-state size dissidents to the capitalist, quote-unquote, consensus. And so it's a lot easier in 1965 to understand why somebody, even in the imperial core, might go underground and try to link up with what's going on in Algeria and Guyana and China and the Soviet Union. I'm, I have less of a clear picture of what motivates 2021 versions of that, right? Unless somebody has a spare Soviet Union or interventionist Cuba in their back pocket that they're hiding from the rest of us. If they do, I think they should socialize it, right? Let's be fucking commies, right? Uh, <laughs> But I don't think they do, right? There's not the geopolitical balance of power that makes any of those activities make sense. And so, you know, people are just trying to divorce the aesthetics from the practice that made the aesthetics make sense. We all love leather jackets. That doesn't make you a fucking panther, right? Like, they were doing a very specific kind of politics that, you know, we can learn from. And we should learn from, and there's lots to learn from it. But, you know, this hardcore ultraism, I think, is an abdication of strategic politics. And when people try to wander it through strategic politics, we just get further and further from understanding either ultra leftism or strategic kind of political leftism. Yeah, I really agree with what you were saying, Femi. But I think where I would defer just a little bit is not that in the current situation, people have fully abdicated the kind of responsibility to have a strategic politics, but that they're reaching strategic conclusions based on their political experiences. And I think the strategic conclusions that they're reaching are garbage. <laughs> and in a lot of the conversations I've had, you know, not to generalize, of course, because not everybody's the same, but a lot of the conversations I've had with people who I would consider based on kind of our definitions here, ultra leftists, is these are people who think that the conditions are actually already in place for a lot of the tactics and solutions that they are advocating for. And I think we saw this. Hashtag general strike. Yo, Exactly. I think we saw that at hashtag general strike and we saw that with hashtag force the vote and it's no coincidence that both of these things are hashtags, right? But in conversation and not to harp on force the vote too much, um, but I do think it's instructive. 
there is a clear strategic logic that is being evinced there, which is we do this parliamentary procedure and we call this hearing and then like something, something, but the people are ready and we don't know what they're ready for or what that next step's going to be. They haven't done the due diligence of planning out what type of engagement or action is supposed to emerge. But I think the assumption is that, and I think part of it comes from the success of our messaging and our cultural power and the Bernie campaign. I think people believe that there are millions waiting to be activated for the right, by the right word or the right event. And so in this schema, like if you already believe that people are functionally organized because you don't actually know what organization is or what power is, if you think we're there already, because you've internalized our systems kind of hegemonic politics of attention. And if you think, oh, because people are paying attention, they're organized. If you actually believe that, then I think it does make strategic sense to demand that AOC do a hearing on Medicaid for all. And the assumption is that people will then respond. Or if you'd get enough people doing the hashtag general strike, that people are ready. And it's the search for this magic button I think that people are ready. We just need to find that magic button to activate them. And so I want to respect that they are making strategic assessments, but I, I think they're baseless. Femi, you wrote something interesting in my mentions to bring it back to Twitter. I don't even remember what my tweet was about, but you were writing that like basically people should know better just because they have neighbors and family members and co-workers from actual life who, if they thought about it for a second, they would be like, oh, is aunt so-and-so ready for the revolution tomorrow? No. So who are who is this public that's fantastically believed to be ready if people's own lived social networks should disprove such an illusion like immediately? This is I'm, no, go I'm ahead, sorry. Go ahead, Can please. I just say I. I this is like what I wanted to respond to, to Zach's point, which is, I think, so spot on, which is that not to be mean, I'm not trying to start a fight, but it's like these people really have no political experience because if you've ever knocked on a door, that shit is extremely humbling because you come in with your own belief system. And like when I was ultra, I mean, this is this is what moved me from being from being ultra from fucking talking to people and being like, wow, everyone has extremely crazy political opinions that make no sense that are all over the place. It's like you support Medicare for all, but you like hate immigrants. You're against abortion. You believe in 5G, like all of these crazy things all rolled around in one person. And it's not just like the one kooky person you meet. It's literally like a majority of people that you talk to have totally incoherent politics. And then you realize most people in this country have totally incoherent politics because not enough people are knocking on their door and talking to them and actually activating them and getting them into an organization, which is our problem that we need to be the ones to fix. But like when you say these things so clearly on Twitter, like like you said, we just need to do X, Y, Z, and then we're going to get the thing that we want. Like it's like a math problem. Like we just need to add this and this, and then we'll get this. It's easy. Why wouldn't it work? That's when you realize, oh, these people have never actually talked to people. They've never done it because you would know that actually our class is so confused, so demoralized, and in many ways, deeply backwards. And that's not to like discourage 
anything. I think it should encourage us more. It shows us the task ahead of us, but it shows us how deeply not ready we are for anything like this. And like, I, I understand that there are people who are like, well, we just need to like talk about it and get and get the word out there and then people will see it and and they'll be like, oh, yeah, general strike. That sounds great. I'm I'm gonna go on the general strike tomorrow, <laughs> but it's like, I mean, even if you just think about, okay, what is Twitter? I mean, I think I saw something that's like the average income of people who use Twitter is like, I don't know, some crazy high percentage. I mean, we must be, all of us must make more money than the average person in this country, which I know is true for me, but. The people who use Twitter are not, by and large, like the average person in this country. And that has to be like thought about when we're talking about all the people using these hashtags, which I know we we are thinking about that. But like people see a hashtag, people who create a hashtag see it trending and they're like, yes, I've got my army. And it's like, well, your army is a bunch of like 30 year olds who like, yes, want Medicare for all. But that's not the base. Femi? Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. And I think Zach's point was right too, right? Um people the, the the disagreement with what I said earlier that people really are thinking strategically, but I think you know, what's happening is people are thinking strategically about situations that less and less resemble reality. And I would add to Mindy's point the way that organizing spaces can function as their own kind of distorting Twitter type effect. And and for me, you know, the points where I was most ultra, it was actually more, I wasn't even on Twitter at that point, but I was organizing actively and just my social space was radicals for the most part. And in that space, what you think of as normal and the interactions that you actually have that would otherwise check you just weren't happening as often. And I think we underestimate how much we actually need those guardrails of, like Mindy said, going door to door and talking to people that aren't selected by being in your cadre, right? But are just people that you've, you know, stumbled into. Um, And so every, you know, a few times a year, I would go home and I would you know, tell my dad, person who literally, you know, left Nigeria a few years before I was born, be like, actually, here's what pan-African radicalism is about. He's just like, are you? (laughs) That's that's adorable, Femi. It's adorable what you think is true, right? Um, And, you know, like, that's not to say that either of us has the authority about what's the intrinsic authority about what is true politically for Africa or anywhere else. But it's just, it was humbling in a certain way where like, I just expected a kind of agreement because my whole sense of normal was based on this bizarro world that the ivory tower is. um, And that ivory tower adjacent organizing spaces can also be. um, And that ultra leftist spaces in and of themselves can also be. And I think that's, that's another way that, Um, this kind of distorting effect can happen that has to do with your political experience. Because you might well have political experience, you know, producing your ultra-leftist newspaper or whatever it is. But, like, do you have political experience building power across 
you know, the working class, right? And not just the particular members of your political tendency. And I think that's a different kind of political experience and that we all need it. And without it, weird things happen. Yeah, Brian W. writes, quote, terminally online, constantly accusing others of being sheepdogs or sellouts, and rarely working with others to expand the socialist movement through mass action are some of their calling cards. Their actions speak to wanting to be king of the smallest kingdom. And quote, the liberal to ultra-left pipeline is often accompanied by an obsession with labels that have no applicability outside of branding on internet forums. What's the difference between a De Leonist, council communist, and a syndicalist when none are able to fill the room they reserved at the library with working people? What do you make of that, particularly if part of the problem is precisely the attraction of being in a small and special club? I mean, I don't want to, like, pathologize or, like, pretend I'm a psychologist or something, but, you know, I think it hits at something Zach said earlier, which is just there is a lot of, like, grief and, like, I think, like, also profound loneliness. Like, I don't think it's an accident that a lot of people, and I'm speaking 100% for myself here, who were, like, complete losers in high school, have found, like, the have found the left in some way. Because it's everyone else just raised their hands. I did not. I just want to point that out. I did not raise my hands. Femi and Zach raised their hand. Go on. on, Yeah, we get it, Dan. You're a cool guy. But I think, I mean, it's the same as any kind of subculture, like any other kind of subculture. Like people get into like anime or people get into like punk or whatever, whatever thing. Sometimes people find leftism and sometimes people find leftism through some other subculture like punk or whatever. I mean, that's kind of how I I sort of butted heads with with the left. Me too. Um and so I I don't think it's like an accident that it it's cultural, it's personal, it's based on, you know, who our who our friends are, who we want to be around. And so it makes sense to me that people want it to be an exclu- exclusive club, especially if in some time in your life you felt cut out of other kinds of clubs or or social circles. And again, like I'm not a psychologist. I'm not pretending to be. I'm only talking about my own experiences of like feeling like a big loser and then feeling like, oh, I'm really cool because I have this like group of five people who have the same exact politics as me we feel a lot smarter and better than everyone else around us. And that it's like a feedback loop, like kind of like what Femi was saying, like either politically or personally. And for a lot of us, we're so isolated, we're alienated, we're all of the things. It's It feels good to have that and to have that kind of community. And Mindy, I think it's fair to say that you were still very much an ultra when we first met. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you thought Bernie yes. was a sellout sheepdog. Yeah, totally. And I'm like, I'm not, I mean, yeah, I have have no problem saying that I was a fucking idiot. And I honestly, I wish more socialists could do that as well. But yeah, I like, you know, in retrospect, I regret the 2016, what I didn't do in, in 2016. And that's kind of how I went into 2020. Like, I don't want to miss this moment. It's such a big moment. And at least for me, I've been a union organizer, an organizer in the labor movement for a long time. And when I first started, I really had these like competing sensibilities. Like I would knock on doors and talk to people and I'd be like, 
oh, okay, people are really complicated. Their politics are really crazy. I don't know, like, what we're what we're going to do. They're not ready for any kind of revolution tomorrow, that's for sure. But then I still held on to this idea that me, as Mindy Iser, like, had to have these certain politics because, like, how else could I be myself without these politics? But then I kept doing union organizing, like, you know, over time, that part of me that wanted to hold on to this kind of identity as the most socialist or the most left wing melted away or was forced out of me, I guess. I, melted away is not the right term. It was forced out of me by the work I was doing because I was like, these do not fit together and they're constantly in conflict and I can no longer hold both of them inside of me. And if I want to move workers either in my job in the union or towards socialism outside of my job, I need to like fully commit to actually like being there and not thinking that I'm better than them or smarter than them or have more correct politics than them. Because it is our job to lead people. I had this idea that like, oh, eventually people are going to be like ready for like some revolution, which like clearly is not true and will not be true. I think, you know, I don't want to fortune tell, but for a long time, if ever. Femi and Zach, you both have indicated that you have traversed similar trajectories? Yeah, I would say similar trajectories. I mean, before I was just indicating that um, I too was a nerd. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I, I guess I guess Daniel was the quarterback of the football team or whatever, but I'm... <laughs> okay, but just to be clear, Femi, I was oh, not okay, a nerd. My fault. Like, I wasn't smart. I just, I just wasn't cool. Like, I wasn't good at something, like, being smart. I just was not cool. Yeah, no, I was cool in, like, a weed-smoking way, not, like, the captain of the football way. Okay, fair. You hosted a couple parties. <laughs> I think, like, for me, it, it was really similar to Mindy, right, where eventually I just started doing things that involved not having this kind of... Eventually I started doing things that, that forced me to have a more realistic set of beliefs about what people were ready for, what they had accepted, what they would accept, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's kind of the principal difference between the ultra leftist and the not ultra leftist. And I think, you know, what's at the end of the feedback loop that Mindy was describing is a relationship to the political ideas and to the people around you who you are talking and using and mobilizing around in terms of these political ideas becomes very self-centered. It's all about how these ideas and the, the people you're talking about, who these ideas are about, fit into your personal narrative. I remember walking into a discussion that some people who I perceived as being ultra leftists were having. Um, and they were, you know, they were rehearsing some hot takes about how Boko Haram was really a thing we should support because they're, um, because they're against. Because Western education is Haram. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, they're fighting U.S. imperialism. And, you know, if we take that seriously, they should be our allies. And I was just like, 
I, I mean, I thought two things after that. You know, I felt disgust and anger. I'm like, you know, like Nigeria is a real place. It's not a pawn in these discussions you're having that is about you signaling the kind of leftist you are. Like you actually shouldn't, There, there's nothing remotely communist about that orientation to other people. But the second thing I thought was, wow, I must sound like that sometimes. <laughs> I have that reaction because, you know, I'm Nigerian American. And so I happen to identify with the people being talked about like that. But, you know, what happens, how do I talk about it when I don't know or feel a connection to the people who I'm describing in a way that's entirely about my personal politics, right? So I can do all the criticism I want, but I have to do the self-criticism afterwards, right? And and that kind of experience was, the, was also the thing that helped me get out of ultra-leftism and into, you know, a different way of relating to this stuff. Zach, I don't know if did you would you in retrospect consider yourself to have been an ultra when I first met you about a decade ago, more than a decade probably. Wow, a de- it's hard to remember what I was doing a decade ago, quite frankly, but definitely an ultra left in my trajectory for a long time. I mean, I grew up in the suburbs in North Jersey. And my first engagement with politics, besides my own experiences of being like closeted and dealing with some bullying and like traumas I was growing up, because those are all political, right? But I think it feeds into some of the stuff Mindy was talking about before, about how people look for groups, right? And look for social acceptance. And I found it among people who were political and who identified as anarchists. And those were the people who brought me into politics. And I was impressed by their uh, voraciousness of their opinions and their strident positions. And I saw that I too could receive social benefits by participating. And so, I, look, I've never been super religious. I don't have a lot of experience in either church or synagogue. My family is on both sides of that. But my experiences going through that process is it ends up feeling really churchy to me. And, you know, the, there's the gospel right? There's the doctrine and your fealty and ability to understand and communicate and preach about the doctrine is key to your social status, right? Your ability to deal with challenges to the doctrine is a way to improve your social status. And it's very about in-group and in-group cohesion. And I read this study once that kind of blew my mind, which was like, I was trying to learn about like cults and more like fringy sex and those terms are contested. But Um, groups that send folks out on the street to proselytize do not recruit that way. And the experience, very rarely, I should say, like overwhelmingly, they recruit through social and interpersonal networks, not random people on the street. The newspaper selling doesn't work. The newspaper selling doesn't work. And that actually the experience that people have when they proselytize on the street is deeply negative. And I think anybody who's walked through Center City and any of our major cities can see this, it is a very lonely job. And it's, you know, two or three people out there. And so you have this really difficult, challenging experience. But what it ends up doing is reinforcing your in-group cohesion. And that is the actual purpose. And once I understood that, I realized how much of how many radical spaces function in essentially the same way where not only are they looking inward, 
but the strategies that are supposed to be facing outward are actually about doctrine and reinforcing in-group cohesion um, and preaching the gospel to the choir. That is such a good point. Like, such a good point. Yeah. I mean, I've, Dan knows this, I've had many different kinds of relationships with people in organizations like this. And I'm more and more convinced by the day that they are cults in their own, in their own way, because it is such a, the commitment that it's, it's so many things, but one, it's like, okay, the commitment required to be part of these groups is like, like you're saying, like you have to do a lot of horrible shit that sucks ass and is also like pointless and fruitless, but you do it because it's like the right thing to do. It, it, brings no it brings nothing to your organization no new members no growth no whatever but you do it because it's the thing you're supposed to be doing and then it's like these groups they get smaller and smaller by the year like you see on twitter all of these like like i just saw something the other day like psl just had like a split and now there's like a new i forget what it's called like U.S. Communist League or something like the groups get smaller and smaller. And so like it it kind of cements your feet into them even more because it's like, well, this is my identity as being part of this group. It's not being a socialist. It's not being committed to like a working class project. It's to be a member of this group that keeps getting smaller every year. But I have to be committed to it because it's my identity. I've done all this shit for it. I can't leave. And like, I know people who have found these, have found these groups or the groups have found them, whatever, when they're like teens and they're well into their 30s and they're still in these organizations. They haven't grown. They've actually shrunk by a lot. They have really nothing. I mean, I don't want to sound like a monster, but they have nothing notable to report in the way they've they've moved the needle or 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 activated the class or anything but it's just like you're in the group so you're in the group and like it doesn't really matter what the group does or doesn't do because you're in the group and i think that last point really really drives home the comparison to religion for me right because as these groups get smaller and they don't have things to report then you have to answer the question you know, why is it someone whose stated commitment is to whatever it is, revolution, maybe something that's going to involve a mass amount of people doing something? Why do they advance that through this small organization that doesn't have identifiable positive effects in the direction of the thing that they want? And, you know, before I uh, we were talking about how, like, there, it's not that strategic or tactical thinking isn't happening, but the way that it's happening is much more like faith. It's much more like prayer. It's the commitment that like your commitment to righteousness will somehow become a causal force in the universe. And you may not know exactly how, but somehow it will become a causal force in the universe and your being right will turn into victory. This is so, yes, 100%. And it, I feel like as organizers, we, at least in the work that we do in my DSA chapter, not to plug DSA or my chapter, but it's like, we're testing things constantly. It's like, okay, we democratically decide to try some kind of campaign or project. We evaluate it. We see 
what happened with it? Did it work? Did it not work? What does working actually mean? Okay, here are the things we're going to do differently next time. Here's what we should change. Here's what we should we should keep doing in the future. All of these kinds of questions should, I think, guide all of our work. But I do think for people who are ultra left, it's like, well, I'm correct. And the ideas I have are correct, which may or may not be true. And so just by the sheer force of me and me being correct in my politics, that is enough for what I believe should happen to happen. Instead of like, what all the things that should be happening in between, like we're trying this, we're trying that, we're talking to people, we're keeping a, a database, we're keeping notes, we're following up with people, we're making sure people are still committed to the thing they said they were committed to on the door. All of those things, that all falls away when you're just thinking of it in a, a kind of a moral way or a an idea or a belief system, because it's not actually about the activity, it's about the belief. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. The Dig is a podcast produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine, which you probably figured out by now. And yes, Jacobin is a print publication, not just your favorite source of online commentary, but also long-form serious print journalism and socialist analysis. The magazine is released quarterly, and it runs at around 130 pages, filled with award-winning design and the ideas that movements need to thrive. Dig listeners can join more than 50,000 Jacobin subscribers supporting this vital work for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's very extensive archive online. First-time subscribers only, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash digjacobin, all in lowercase. I think a big part of this that Camejo addresses and that I've certainly witnessed as something very much in play today is how a sense of dire urgency translates into a panic in a sense that there's no time to strategize. Kameho says, quote, this is another thing that these ultra left upside down liberals have the panic button since they don't see any countervailing force. They think that at any moment the whole country could just go bang at any moment. The ruling class can make a move to the right and they don't see any way to stop it. So they throw in the towel. They just panic anything, just do something, everybody, for Christ's sake. And somehow this coexists, weirdly enough, with the idea, the hopeful fantasy that the general strike could go off tomorrow. I think people kind of seesaw between these two kind of poles. What do you make of this, how this sense of urgency that things are too high stakes to slow down and strategize, how that translates into a panic? I mean, I think it's a an interesting, funny balance because, you know, when you're trained in the union to be an organizer, so much is about urgency. Like, you don't want to leave someone on the door as a three, as an undecided person. You want them to pick a side. You want them to pick the union side, obviously. So you're really trying to frame the choice. Like, 
What are you going to do right now in this moment when you know all of these things? Your boss sucks ass. You make shit money. You don't have health insurance, blah, blah, blah. What are you going to do? What are you going to choose? And so I appreciate the feeling that we need people to act. Like I, I really do appreciate that. I get that on a deep level from being on the doors for the union. But what also is happening in the union at this time is like, tons and tons of research and planning and strategy making before you even hit those doors. Here is our universe. Here is our goal. Here is our timeline. Here is what we know from the employer. Here's what the fight we know we're going to be up against. Here's what we know about the workers that we're going to be knocking. All of these things go into how we have the conversation, how we actually frame the choice, how we actually express the urgency. And it seems like that is the step that's been missing. And there is no strategy because like he says in the piece, it's like, do this, do that, chain yourself to the to the building, have a sit-in, do, do X, Y, Z, do whatever, just do something. Like, because none of the that stuff is happening before. And it's just hoping that you'll throw something at the wall and something will stick. And also, you know, I I get that urge as well. Like we should be trying new things. We should be experimenting, whatever. But those experimentation, those choices should come with prior thought and prior strategy. Femi, Zach? I think one of the things that's behind this is, um, again, the kind of rootedness of people's politics in, you know, what's going on in their own lives. In this case, that kind of like emotional feeling of desperation, right? That can be, that's not something that you want, you know, as many was just saying, you don't want urgency and the stakes to leave the picture of politics. Um, But neither do you want like, your feeling of desperation to be the thing that you're responding to, right? The thing we're trying to change is the world. We're trying to change the outcomes. We're trying to change what the state is doing. We're trying to change what opportunities people have. We're trying to change, you know, in, in our day and age, we're trying to change what's going on with the planet itself. And, you know, feelings of fear and desperation can contribute to that. But, you know, we're not trying to feel busy, right? That's not the solution. Like, the solution is to win some stuff politically, to um, challenge this and to unionize that and et cetera, et cetera. And I think there's a kind of subject change that happens when we get to this level of desperation. And at the bottom of that desperation, I think, is a feeling of powerlessness that people were responding to in in ways that make sense really like if you if you really thought that you know everything is just off the rails then maybe just doing something would be better than nothing but if you understood as as unions do that like look urgency is something we can harness along with all this strategic thinking that we can also harness along with all this historical knowledge that we can also harness if you didn't feel so powerless and if you felt like the situation was a situation you could meet, that fear would be more constructive rather than destructive. And I think responding to that is just the kind of base building, power building work that you know a lot of people are up to and that we need to keep doing. 
the feeling busy thing that Femi that you just said, I think that's so important because I think when people like get politicized, they want to be like the Norma Ray in like the movie where she's like standing with the union sign. Like that's what people see themselves as. That's who they want to be. They want to be in the, they want to be the star in a movie about their own life. I think that really is part of this. When, when you actually start organizing and you realize like, actually this is about keeping like a Google doc and a Google sheet and like emailing people to remind them about the thing that they volunteered to do. (laughs) Yeah. It's just like constant fucking Google docs, Google sheets, emailing people, calling people, reminding them to do the thing they said they were going to do. It's boring as shit. It's annoying. You feel like a nag. You don't feel like the star in a movie about your own life or like in a movie about some kind of movement. And that's humbling and good and important. But until people actually do those things, they don't know that that's what it is. So like people want to feel like they're constantly in motion and like the motion is like doing something big and active and chaining themselves to something, which of course has its place and is important. And I'm not trying to discount direct action at all, but just saying there are all these things that lead up to the direct action that happen that, that a lot of these people are not considering because they've never done it and it's not part of their understanding of politics. I got radicalized as a teenager in a high school student in the late 90s. And interestingly, in retrospect, I definitely got arrested way more frequently in my earlier years as an activist than I have in my later years. And I'm not sure I was a more effective activist or organizer than than I am now. In fact, perhaps quite to the contrary. I think after Kristen Cinema voted against... I think it was the 15, the inclusion of the $15 minimum wage. You know, there was this like little meme going around because she used to be a Green Party activist, right? She's gone through this really strange political trajectory of her in Miami. And I think it was 2003 in a black block at the free trade area of the Americas protest. She did the opposite. She went from ultra left to liberal. Right. Which is not talked about enough. Right. But it's the same thing. She hits this wall where it doesn't come together and she falls into despair. And so she just swings in the other direction. And I thought it was so funny because I was also in Miami for the free trade area of the Americas with my other young anarchist friends who had radicalized me around these like protests and summit hoppings and like black block confrontations and stuff. And I remember being down there and looking at the militarized police and looking at the like scattered adolescents in black clothing and being like, wait a minute, this strategy is dumb. Like we're about to get our asses kicked out here. And to be sure that's exactly what happened. And the only other thing I would say is that like, I love that we're talking about the psychological and like personal aspects here and the grief and the trauma and the urgency. And I'm thinking just psychologically, like is anybody who's been in a moment of like panic or urgency, if someone you know or love is injured or there's a fire in your house, you do dumb stuff. You just, your brain takes over, your like limbic system, I don't really know the biology here, takes over. Go for it. (laughs) And you just start organizing your papers for the office. So you can take them out with you. And it's like, actually, those don't matter. You don't need to be doing that right now. You should go for the pet. And it's in retrospect, you know, there are all these stories of people who are like, I went through this traumatic experience 
And like people are in my family or in my life are blaming me because I didn't respond the right way in this moment of like incredible crisis. And I want to give space to the fact that the urgency people feel is causing them to panic. And that's where this completely natural urge to, as you said, Mindy, I think it was just do something, do anything, you know, comes from. And so I respect that. But similarly, you can train for urgent and panic situations. Like there are courses in this. And I think that's true for political life as well. And what we're experiencing here is a lack of hard skills that the urgency people feel is appropriate, but they don't have the hard skills to plan in moments where they're feeling panicked and urgent. And the only other thing I I would add about that is that I honestly feel like a piece of that is comes from liberalism as like a political and ideological system as like a system of forgetting where under the liberal schema, there is no past. The past is like constantly being reconstituted as the validation of the present. And there is no future because history is ended and the future is really just the continuation of the present moment to infinity. And this erasure and forgetting and the impossibility of imagination, I think, traps people in the present moment where it is do something, do anything, because we don't really have the skills to think there is a future. And I don't I don't know the origin of this quote, but it's always stuck with me. You know, what is it that we can do today so that tomorrow we can do what we can't do today? which is like super straightforward. But if you don't really believe there's a tomorrow or you believe that tomorrow is going to be exactly the same as today on and on forever until you die, it's hard to think that way. And I think that's our task. And the other, totally. And the other side of this, I think, is like the people who are so freaked out about climate change, which is an extremely reasonable thing to be freaked out about. And they're like, it's too far gone. There's nothing we can do. So like, fuck it, basically. And like that, it's like the horseshoe theory of like the people who are like, okay, we need to like bomb a building, whatever, tomorrow with like three people because climate change is so serious and intense. And the people who are like, climate change is so serious and we're too far gone. There's nothing we can even do. So like, let's just be hedonists and whatever, live life, live, laugh, love, like nothing else to do. There's no, there's no possibility for organizing. There's no possibility for building up the class to be able to fight back against this. So like, whatever. And I really think like those are two sides of the same thing, which is a true hopelessness and a true lack of belief in regular people's ability to change the world. Do you all think that most people on the left today know that organizing and leadership are skill sets that you can learn, like becoming a pilot, a plumber, a nurse, a carpenter? I think they think they're skill sets, but I think they think that they're skill sets in the way that like being really good at a sport is a skill set. Right. So if you're five, seven, you could get better at basketball tomorrow than you are now. But if you're playing against LeBron James, why bother? I think that's how people think about it. And and that's not to say that, like, look, the your the personality that you happen to have has nothing to do with how effective of an organizer that you would be or or whatever. Right. That's not to say that that stuff isn't true. But I think people 
tend to overly mysticize what is a really learnable set of skills, right? Like, like Mindy was saying before, you know, you know what a Google Doc is? You know what a Google Sheet is? Can you send somebody some reminders? Like, you're 80% of the way to being, you know, to being a reasonably effective organizer. And I think our culture of celebrity has contributed to people's over-mystification of this. Because, like, a lot of these people that we rightly, you know, that we rightly respect and revere in organizing circles were just regular people who had the very unregular thought that they could do something about the world around them and who just decided to do it. Yes, 100%. I get really frustrated when I see people on Twitter who are like, organizing isn't for everyone, so I I can't do it and I want to do X, Y, Z. And like, sure, I guess there are people with like really extreme social anxiety who like maybe really can't, whatever. I also have social anxiety and I manage quite fine. But like, I I really do think Femi's completely right. It's like we have this idea of what an organizer is and it's like some kind of big leader who can like move an entire room of people. And like, yes, that is true for some people and those people are lucky and special. And I think sort of what Femi was touching on, it's true. I think there are certain personality types that are more suited to being that kind of organizer and that kind of leader. And that's kind of what the internet can sometimes prop up for better or for worse. But if you're able to knock on someone's door and ask them about, ask them hard questions about their life and ask them what they want to be different and what they want to see changed and how they think that could be changed. And if you're able to follow up with that person, then you're an organizer. It's not a special innate skill. It's it's something that we all learn how to do by practicing. And we just have to keep doing it. We have to keep practicing it. And we practice it by practicing it with our comrades, but also like actually practicing it on the doors with people. And like, that's what makes you better at it. And that's what makes it easier and more comfortable. And it's not like something you can just snap your fingers and and be good at, but it's also not something that's like only for certain people. And I think people, they want to feel like they're like a master at their craft and they want to go out on the doors and have an amazing day where they like meet someone who has no politics and then an hour later they're a socialist. And then when they knock on doors and they get a lot of not homes or weird conversations, which is the majority of what happens, they're like demoralized when really like every single time we do that, we're doing something, even if we're not getting like the specific exact result that we want in that day. Mindy, I wanted to go back to Bernie do you all think that this has been a more powerful dynamic in the wake of Bernie 2020 than it was after Bernie 2016? Because that's definitely how it appears to me. And I'm not entirely sure why, but it might be that Bernie was really very close to winning last year. And the goal really was to win in a way that it wasn't at the beginning of 2016. And it was totally devastating that he lost. How do you think people are making sense of and processing that loss and amid a global pandemic of all things. Yeah, I think we're not processing, honestly. I think we all need like a lot of group therapy. I mean, not to sound like woo-woo, but I think, yeah, Bernie lost and then we were thrust into this insane, horrible pandemic with 
I mean, I thought it was going to be like a month. I had no idea. And then it's like no end in sight and we're politically hopeless and everything feels hopeless. But like, this is totally different than 2016. I mean, the reason I wasn't involved in 2016 was part my politics at the time, but also partly I was like, there's no chance. And that's why 2020 was so different because he was kicking ass. His campaign had changed. The country had changed in part thanks to all the people who were doing Bernie work in 2016. I mean, we, not we, me, but we organizers changed the terrain. And that is, that's why we organized. That's, that's amazing. But I think, you know, I went to Nevada for my Bernie journey. And when he won in Nevada, I was like, oh shit. Like there was like that one or two week period where it was like, oh my God, like Bernie is going to be the nominee. And that wasn't like idealism. Like it felt real from what had been happening in the campaign. And then when he was just crushed in South Carolina and everyone coalesced around Biden, I mean, I think that was really difficult, especially because I don't know what we could have done differently to prevent that. And yeah, I'm sure the campaign made made missteps. I'll let like the people closer to it have their opinions on that. But at the end of the day, we just weren't strong enough to defeat the ruling class. And like, that is the hardest thing to deal with because even if we did everything right in the six months of the campaign or however long, we did not have the power. And so how do you process something like that? I think for people who have been organizers for a long time, we're used to big losses. We know that this is kind of what we're up against. But I think it makes sense to kind of turn to ultra-leftism if you're radicalized by the Bernie campaign, you see Bernie winning, you see Bernie being right, you see yourself being right, because you are right, and he was right, he is right, and still it's not enough. So you're just like, fuck it, I want to burn it the fuck down. Like, I get that impulse. I mean, I, like, definitely, like, kicked many walls and cried a lot. But it's like, for us, we have a, a larger context and a larger history of loss, like, We're the ultimate losers. And I mean that in like the nicest way possible. Like we are just used to losing. But if you think that being right equates to winning and then you lose, it doesn't jive in your head. And so you need to have an understanding of the forces that are at play, which helps you say, okay, this is why we lost. Not because we weren't right, but because we weren't strong enough. Yeah, I mean, we're the ultimate losers, but having some perspective can lead one to understand that we nonetheless more powerful and more consequential in this country than we've been in decades. And one thing that seems to be missing in terms of education on the left is an understanding of history in general and left history in particular, even just the past half century, few decades of American left history. And so it feels like we're constantly having the same debates repeatedly without those debates being informed by how they've played out in the past. And so like in particular, the reemergence of the debate over forming a third party in the wake of Bernie's defeat. In reality, I think quite clearly, having been radicalized in part around the Ralph Nader campaign in 2000 as a 17-year-old, very committed activist who was too young to vote, it's quite clear that Bernie's campaigns have been far more successful than any left third party effort in recent decades. That, of course, doesn't solve the question, which is a complicated one of what socialists should do about the two-party system, but it should at least inform the it should at least inform the debate. Right. Well, I'll just say before passing it to Zach and Femi, sorry, I know I'm talking a lot. It's like we are losing less and less, which like, you know, almost doesn't count, whatever. I know that's like a famous song and a 
thought process. But if you've been losing, if you're like, let's say you're on, I think Femi was talking about basketball. Let's say you're on a basketball team. Let's say you're losing every game by a hundred points and then you start training, you know, Allen Iverson, he's not going to practice, but the rest of us, <laughs> we're going to practice. That was a Sixers joke. <laughs> only, only Philadelphians will understand. We're going to practice. We're working all the time. We start losing by less and less. We're losing by 80 points. Then we're losing by 60 points. Then we're losing by 40 points. Then we're losing by 20 points. Then the games are competitive. We're going into overtime. That's a good place to be. But if you look at it as just a win or a loss, you just see a million L's and you're like, damn, they suck. But it's like actually conditions are changing and you need to look closer at those conditions before you decide, oh, are we abandoning this ship and just like planning a bomb or like joining a third party or whatever? Or are we going to keep doing what we're doing when it's it's working and it's slow and it sucks that it's slow, but it's still working? All right. So uh, Zach or Femi, thoughts just on kind of this, like, is this like a, a newly post-Bernie 2020 thing? That's how it feels to me, but I could be wrong i've never i've never seen such a kind of ultra way you know over the over the years like pre my pre-bernie years on the left there were ultras who were ultras in the way that mindy was an ultra who were the member of members of like small trot parties ultra style ultras but this new this new kind of so democratic socialist after social democratic demands altruism that we've seen in the last few months is something i've honestly never seen before in this way yeah, I, I think I think it is new, but I actually I have a different read on what it is. I think at bottom, it's actually a response to I mean, we could put it the way Mindy does is like slowly evening up the score between the other team and the left. Um, or, you know, I even like to think of it as the left's victories. Right. We're seeing trillions of dollars of spending. Um, that is not the version of fiscal discipline that the ruling class five years ago, even three years ago, would have endorsed, right? But here we are, post-COVID, you know, there's something like a universal basic income for children for at least a year. If you would have told Coretta Scott King that we would win, <laughs> that we would win that, I, I would guess that she would have been surprised, right? But, you know, here we are. The status quo is, you know, the Overton window after Bernie has swung so far to the left because of the left's successful pressure on the ruling class that now ultra leftists have a different environment if they're going to pursue the kind of social goals that ultra leftism is about, right? How do you accomplish signaling? that you are leftier than thou after Bernie, like after significant amounts of people were on this team, right? It's not good enough to be, to be Bernie because Bernie was popular, right? Bernie was popular to an extent that people hadn't thought was possible. So now you have to be somehow, you have to be more ultra than that. You're, we're still not in a space where you can seriously be as ultra as, you know, these people who are going underground. Uh, but I think we're I, I think we will get there as well. 
And, and when we see these people, you know, we should tell them to chill out, but we should also view it as a mark of our success, right? As, as a mark of the march of popular opinion further left. I'm reminded of Rosa Luxemburg's piece after the 19, the failure of the 1919 Spartacist week, you know, one of her like most famous polemics. And in the end, she just has this incredible line. I'm just going to quote it actually, where she says, you know, the masses are the crucial factor. They are the rock on which the ultimate victory will be built. Uh, The masses were up to the challenge. And I love this. And out of this defeat, in quotes, this quote, defeat, they have forged a link in the chain of historic defeats, which is the pride and strength of international socialism. And I just think that speaks exactly to what both of you were saying, that there is a dialectic here and that we are forging right through the middle of it, where our losses, if the process and our strategy is correct, strengthen us for our inevitable win. And obviously our challenge is to make sure that we engage in these things with the kind of process that is productive. And, you know, the last thing I'll say is that to me, this gets at the heart of mass politics, at what mass politics actually is, which is fundamentally an iterative scientific process of a political program that over time, through each iteration, strengthens our program, strengthens our relationship with our social base, builds and develops more leadership and cadre, and we do hypothesis. And Mindy, you spoke to this, I think, explicitly earlier as well. We do hypothesis, we do experiment, we evaluate the experiment, we adjust, and then we experiment again. And if our process is strong, then each iteration we grow stronger, even if each iteration singularly is experienced as a defeat. And so as long as I think our process is good, we don't have to look at these as defeats. Yes, 100%. I mean, okay, I know I said I, I said I was a loser in high school. Now I'm a jock, so I'm going to give another sports <laughs> analogy. It's like if you're a Sixers fan, you know, you trust the process. And the same is true for being an organizer. It's like if we are Marxists and we believe in the eternal science of Marxism, then we are going to use that belief system to create our plans and our work and we're going to we're going to trust that what we know and what we do is correct and we're going to keep we're going to keep doing the things that we know we're supposed to do as organizers we're going to keep engaging the masses on issues that matter to them and like that's just what we have to keep doing no matter how many times we lose no matter how close the loss is we have to keep doing it and we have to keep reflecting on it and iterating and learning. And like, that's all there is to it. There's no magic bullet. There's no special secret sauce. It's just organizing with people every single day until you win. And like, that's not sexy. And that's what's hard about it. It's like, people want the sexiness. They want the immediate gratification. They want to see their hashtag go viral. They want they want that immediate release they want to win because it's really it's really shitty to lose I mean it sucks when Bernie lost it was devastating I mean I I was like legitimately depressed about it it was horrible but like 
there's no other way. That's the thing. It's like, if we could win that way through Twitter hashtags or having the best polemic or the best belief, we would, but we can't. So we just, we have to trust that what we're doing, we have to trust the process. We have to trust that what we're doing is right. Kameho has a really interesting argument about how to relate to the masses. And you all have touched on this, but Brian W. argues, and I think obviously correctly, that what distinguishes socialists socialist politics is that it is fundamentally oriented towards mass politics. And Camejo is writing this in the context of the Socialist Workers' Party's line at the time, which was to push the anti-Vietnam War movement to coalesce around the simple and appealing message, bring all the troops home now. You can imagine all the sorts of criticisms that such an approach would get from, from people who position themselves to the SWP's left at the time. He said, quote, Our concept is to unite people in action around the issues on which they're moving, not because we're single-issue fetishists. Our aim, in fact, is to move people around broader and broader issues, but we've got to deal with reality, not with abstractions. We advocate general strikes, but we don't call them because we're not fools. We know there cannot be a general strike on any issue right now, given the present level of consciousness. And you won't get to the point where there can be general strikes unless you put people in motion, precisely because when they start to move on any one issue, whether women's liberation, the war, or racial oppression, people begin to question the whole society and to see the interrelationship between the different issues. In fact, it is the way people radicalize. People don't suddenly understand everything at once. As we've said over and over again— At the present stage, the most effective weapon to stop the ruling class from moving to the right is to get masses of people in motion. The most effective way to do this, at this stage especially, is mass, peaceful, legal demonstrations in the streets. Now, if we want to build a movement against the Vietnam War, it cannot, by definition, be multi-issue. The multi-issue anti-war movement is the trick which is the key to how the liberals and the ultra-leftists can get together organizationally, politically, socially, etc., get married, and live happily ever after. The trick is to make the issues so nebulous that they have nothing to do with concrete realities. Instead of demonstrating to bring the troops home from Vietnam now, which is very concrete, they call for stop imperialism. Nothing like an abstraction. Even Nixon can say, I'm against imperialism too. That's what Britain and France and Holland did in the 18th and 19th centuries. But Nixon can't say, bring all the troops home now. Or they say we should raise the demand, end racism. Isn't Nixon willing to say, end racism? So they make a real multi-issue program, end racism, end repression, end imperialism, and male chauvinism. What we want is to call for concrete demands and mobilize people to win them. Demands like get out of Vietnam, or black control of the black schools, or concrete campaigns around specific cases of repression. But that's not what liberal ultra-leftists do. What they call a multi-issue program is a list of abstract reforms. Continuing along these lines, he says, quote, This is the same strategy which is used by a union when it carries out a strike. When a union calls a strike, it calls it on certain demands. Higher pay, better working conditions, whatever the demands happen to be for that struggle. If a majority of the workers agree, 
they take a vote and then everybody strikes together. And they put a very heavy emphasis on keeping it together. The workers don't say, why don't we also take a stand on the Arab-Israeli conflict or on housing or on the last bill passed in Congress as a prerequisite to participate in the strike? You've got to deal with people where they're at. It's literally timeless. Sorry, I'm sorry. It's timeless because you see at rallies today, there will be placards that are like, end to imperialism, fight racism. And it's like, what the fuck is this rally about? I don't know because it's like, yes, I'm opposed to racism. Yes, I'm opposed to imperialism. But what is the demand? What is the demand being lifted up? It's, It's impossible to know. It's the exact same placard at every single rally. I think about this and this actually segment of the piece often because I feel like there is this this conflict a lot in in organizing and in in the union movement, even in DSA, where it's like, okay, this is where workers are. And many of them are, they're in different places. Some are backwards in some way. Some are very committed to their union, but they're also racist. Some are 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 strong unionists, but they're also Trump voters. Like there are all these contradictions. And so it's, the question is, how do we interface with them? How do we interact with them? How do we try to move them? And on one hand, it's like, yes, we meet workers where they're at. We don't say, you don't have the perfect opinions on this. So fuck you. You can't be part of our club because that's not how we see it. We don't see it as a club. We're trying to build a mass movement and we need everyone. And on the other side of it is our job, our role is to lead the class to to a place and and through something. And so that means challenging people on certain ideas. And so I think there are these these kind of frictions on the left where it's like, you know, some people and I don't know if this is getting too like deep into something, but some people want to focus on like bread and butter issues because it's where Everyone can sort of agree. Everyone has bills to pay. Everyone has ha- has or needs health insurance. Everyone needs money, whatever. So it's like we're focused on wages. We're focused on unions. We're focused on on health insurance, like Medicare for all. And then there are people who are like, no, we need to be broader and talk about racism and sexism and imperialism and all these things, which I think, yes, we do need to talk about them. But I feel like there's this conflict where people are like, well, well, a lot of these workers are not there yet. They don't have the same ideas about racism or sexism or imperialism. So we need to get them with these bread and butter issues and then move them along that way. And, you know, there's there's all these different schools of thought, and I think they can all be compelling in their own way. But ultimately, I mean, one thing I just want to put out there is like, when we say we're meeting workers where they're at, it doesn't mean we're tailing the most backward sections of the class. It means we're hearing people and we're saying, huh, okay, I, I get it, I hear you. And also, the this is what's, we're not going to tolerate racism or sexism, no matter how you feel inside, that's not going to be acceptable in our organization or in our work. And also, this is what's going to unite us. And this is what we're going to fight, fight for, regardless of our differences. And I, I just think that's important to lift up. I think it's not to ignore or downplay other issues, but precisely because identifying strategic issues is the only way to advance all of the fights. And because radicalization on one issue, whatever that issue is at the moment, is the best way to radicalize people across the board. And I don't think it cuts any particular way in terms of the way these kind of 
race identity versus class debates are so often set up because to take two different examples, that would cut different ways. I think on the one hand, it's true that organizing West Virginia and Arizona teachers around striking as teachers was a great way to radicalize them toward the left in general. I think it's also true, on the other hand, that radicalizing people around police violence and racism when last summer that was the focal point of politics that put more people into the streets than ever before in U.S. history, that that at that moment was the best way to radicalize people to the left in general. I think it's all about kind of it's not like race versus class or identity. It's like strategically assessing the moment and working with the moment. You know, I think Camille's point at bottom isn't about what kind of demands you need to have in terms of their content, like whether they're about wages or about benefits, but what kind of demands you need to have tactically, like whether they are concrete, identifiable demands that the ruling class doesn't get to operationally define for you, right? If you say end racism and no one knows what the fuck that means, then Nixon or... Reagan or Obama or Biden or Robin D'Angelo or or Robin D'Angelo or Ibram Kendi is going to tell you what that means. And they're going to come up with some bullshit. Right. And they're going to charge you a lot of money for it. They're going to charge you a lot of money for it. And they're going to pay it to the they're going to pay it through the J.P. Morgan Ida B. Wells. Oh, my God. Shut the fuck up. That's killing me. Whatever the fuck. Like, this is what they're going to do time and time again. They've shown us this. Right. And what's key isn't what the demands are about. And I think the bargaining for the common good movement has demonstrated this in no uncertain terms. The key is the workers have to define have to be in charge of defining what it is that they're fighting for and whether or not they have won it. And, and that is compatible with, do, with fighting for things outside of just wages and benefits. The Chicago Teachers Union did it. An SEIU local in Minnesota did it. They fought for better sexual harassment guidelines, better sick pay, and greener cleaning materials. The, the key is they define the terms of success and victory. And often that's the only thing that you get to define, right? You might not get to define whether you win or lose, but if you also hand the government that has all the dollars and all the guns, the ability to define your success or failure, like you're just, you know, shooting yourself in the foot in a game that's already rigged. Totally. And one thing I'll add, and then I, We'll pass it to Zach, sorry. It's just that I just also want to say that, like, yeah, there are also a lot of backwards ideas in the working class and a lot of backwards people in the working class. But I think the difference between socialists and liberals, I hope at least one difference, is that we don't believe that to be a fixed position. You're just, you're not born backwards and you don't die backwards. It's like something influences you and something can influence you again. And like, I think that's our role. And I've seen that happen. Like I was really active in the community support for the uh, UAW strike at General Motors in 2019 and a work site near me in Bucks County in, in the Philly suburbs. Like it was a multiracial work site with a lot of different political opinions, like a lot of white 
white uh, workers there were Trump voters. And the strike really, I mean, not to be corny, but it really brought people together and really clarified what was at stake, at least in that moment. That was the thing they needed to unite around, even if they like wouldn't even like look at each other on the floor at work when they went back to work. Like that wasn't relevant. What was relevant in the moment was fighting the boss. And to do that successfully, they needed to come together. And they understood that immediately because it was so obvious. And I think that kind of understanding should be part of the work that we do. I, th- I think it's really clear from this conversation. One part I love about it is that, you know, we're obviously just exploding the false dichotomy between class or race. And really it becomes a question of both and, and a question of methodology. And I think in a lot of respects, we're challenging people to, to ask the unasked questions. Like when you say that you want to end racism, what I want to hear is, among who and via what method. And the specifics that you both have raised, I think, are are so instructive um, and an experience that I've had. So I'm a member of Put People First in Pennsylvania, um, and we're a pretty grassroots group. We organize around human rights. We're a human rights organization. Our main campaign is healthcare as a human right. We have healthcare rights committees located um, in about 10, maybe more than that now, Uh, locations around Pennsylvania, both like major urban cores like Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and more rural areas, including a bunch of places that are classically referred to in the mainstream press as like Trump County. Like we have a powerful chapter in Pennsylvania. Yeah, right. Which is just a a slur. I hate that term. I I it it literally kills me. It, It drives my like blood pressure up. 8 million percent, which is not good for a Jew. (laughs) No, no, absolutely. It's classist garbage and it's divisive and it's divisive to our class. And so what we did is we looked at our state and did a power map and said, what are the divisions among the working class that prevents us from uniting and exercising power in the state? And, you know, there are many, obviously. And some of the biggest ones that we identified were geography right? Localizing people within the centers of capital while people on the periphery of capital and the rural areas are separated and having completely different life and political experiences and among race, right? Extreme racial segregation that is also geographical in nature. And so we picked healthcare as an issue because it cuts across all of these communities. And we've been using it effectively to organize people across what we call these lines of difference. And through that process, we are bringing people together into a relationship that is challenging some of their basic assumptions about whether they are really different from other people, in what ways they are really the same, and in what ways they have the same needs. And so I think to the question of like, race or class, and to the question of like, specific issues, really the question is, who specifically are you trying to organize? And what method, what strategy, and what goal, and what tactics do you think will be effective in wedding both those issues together in a way that they cannot be separated? What Mindy and, and Femi and Zach do we do with the situation? Because we had we, this has been kind of a bit of a pessimistically framed discussion because the subject is kind of this new wave of altruism when ironically what we are trying to say to the ultras is hey the left in fact has come such a long way in the last few decades and we're really doing better than ever which is nowhere near good enough to meet 
the challenges that we face, particularly in the context of a climate crisis. But what is your overall appraisal of of the state of things and the way forward? What's the task of the left at this moment, particularly, and I could be wrong, but there was a recent IMF study of all things of epidemics globally and throughout history that found that epidemics are frequently followed by periods of significant social unrest because epidemics exacerbate and highlight pre-existing problems, but also make it difficult for people to solve them because everyone's dying and trying to (laughs) save each other. So I joined the IMF in predicting that there will be significant social unrest after this pandemic is over. What is the left's What's your assessment of the state of the left that has come so far, but is also slipping into despair and altruism and that still has significant historic tasks ahead of it that we cannot even predict from where we are sitting now? I'm very pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will constantly. There's no other option. I'm like, this shit sucks, but what's the alternative? We just have to keep pushing forward. And I really don't want to sound like a DSA bot, but I guess I'm going to. I I think the the PRO Act and working to pass the PRO Act is like the most important task ahead of us. And I know that doesn't sound sexy and doesn't sound like the potentially the unrest that the IMF is predicting. And, you know, maybe it will if we don't end the filibuster and we don't pass the PRO Act. There might be a lot of unrest. So if the ruling class is listening, they should get ready. Uh, We're going to do what it takes to pass the PRO Act. But really, I think that passing the PRO Act is going to revolutionize our organizing. It's going to grow the organized working class by hundreds of thousands very quickly because it's going to make it so much easier for workers to form a union. And we know that unionized workers are more likely to be politically active and to vote. And it's it's going to make it so independent contractors are not misclassified. And it's going to make those people be able to actually organize as the workers that they are. So it's going to allow millions of workers to organize. And that is what we need. We need millions of workers to be able to join unions in this country and to be able to take political action and to be able to practice democracy in the workplace. And so for me, I know this is like not a sexy answer. It's not interesting or cool, but it's really just to work to pass the PRO Act. I think it's what all socialists and leftists should be doing. It's where we should be putting the bulk of our energy because once we have a more organized working class, we're going to be able to win things like a Green New Deal and Medicare for All, which right now we're not close to winning those things. And the only way we're going to be able to win those is by helping thousands and thousands and millions of workers form unions. And so I guess I'm like the opposite of ultra left because I'm like just trying to think about the things that we can do to most quickly and most easily make uh, workers have more power and make our society better, which to be clear will not be quick and will not be easy, but the alternative is a lot less quick and a lot less easy. And so, I mean, my plea to anyone listening to this is to organize like hell to pass the Protecting the Right to Organize Act. That's that's my that's my take, and I think that it's the only way we're going to be able to win any of the other things any of us want. There's no there's no force the vote that's going to get us Medicare for all. The only thing that's going to get us Medicare for all is millions of workers who are soldiers for Medicare for all, and they're only going to be soldiers for Medicare for all 
when they learn how to be part of an organization and they're only going to learn how to be part of an organization by practicing and being part of an organization. And that's that's what unions are for in in one sense. And I, that's why that, that needs to be our task. Yeah, no, on the contrary, I think that's a dead on, both in terms of the specific reform and the near-term goal, but the way that that goal rebuilds and reconstitutes our class as a class. And, and that's really where I find myself in this question you know, the ruling class runs the state and they run society and they are the class in power and they're able to fight for their interest as a class, despite the divisions between them. We simply don't have that capacity right now. And so we need to be thinking, I think, holistically about what it really means to rebuild the full spectrum of the working class. All our institutions, our social relationships, our living conditions and communities, our families, but in particular, right, our organizations and to constitute and, and rebuild that middle layer of organizers and leaders and cadre and members and membership organizations that have been decimated, reconstitute that layer, rebuild the skills that we need to engage in this fight in the long term, and then start asking ourselves the really tough, strategic, specific questions. And, and honestly, in this way, kind of contra to the framing of our broader discussion, I want us to get more radical in that sense. Because for me, taking a radical goal isn't actually radical if there's no concrete, feasible program to get there. And so for me, what's, what's really radical, what's really left us is having a plan to win. And so I want to encourage myself and all of us to dig deep into these questions with our comrades of like, if we're really serious about passing the PRO Act or passing Medicare for All or uh, starting a general strike or winning a social revolution in a class war, what's our plan? What sectors of our class are best positioned to take the lead in that fight? Who is best capable of coalescing to form a new historic block that can enter history as a subject and fight for our class as a class uh, and compete against the fully arrayed forces of the capital capitalist class. Like we need to be prepared to govern society. That is the end goal of what we're building as a working class to push the capitalist class out of the ruling position and to take that position for ourselves. And so if our long-term horizon here is really governance, we need to be specific about what sectors, what organizations, what institutions, what coalitions we need to build out so we have the infrastructure necessary to make those moves. And I thought Mindy's explanation of why the PRO Act is beneficial is such a clear-cut example of one of the steps that gets us there. Femi. So I, I completely agree with what Mindy and Zach have said about the PRO Act and the significance of the PRO Act. So I guess the only thing I would add is on the other side of the PRO Act and on the other side of rebuilding that complement of organizations and knowledge and roles in action, I think is a left that is increasingly willing to take a role in designing not only its institutions, but the world, because that's what it's going to take 
right? I mean, for me, that's what workers in the world unite has to mean. Because not only are the stakes higher than ever with climate crisis, but the ruling elite across the board, but especially in this country, has shown scant ability or interest in addressing the crisis. They meet every few years to have hors d'oeuvres in Copenhagen or wherever the fuck and talk about the shit that they're not doing and repeat the process year in and year out. Targets come and go for emissions reductions, um, rarely successfully. There are no answers, even from capital, not to talk of the formal political system, but the insurance companies aren't even figuring out how to do their aspect of the job. I'm not even talking about how to be a good functioning role in a overhaul of the financial system that helps to stop the climate crisis. I mean, just answering regular ass questions about what the risks are of flood damage, their basic motherfucking job. They can't even do that, right? So we're talking about a ruling class that is in utter disarray, right? Where the trust fund kids of generations past of imperial elite have been left unsupervised at the wheels and levers of power. And these people are going to drive us off a cliff. Right. So, so what I, you know, I would encourage everybody to read CLR James's every cook can govern, not because I actually care about ancient Greek democracy. I do not, but because I care about democracy, because I care about the point of view of looking at people as if they are capable of making decisions that affect not just their political organizations, but their entire social life. That is the commitment that we have as people who are socialists or communists. We don't have to argue about those distinctions. But being this part of the left, we are committed to thinking that people can and should make decisions about what their lives should be like. That might start with what their union should be like, but it's going to have to move in a quick and serious way to what their world can be like, because no one else is answering those questions in a serious way. And the forces of capital and the forces of empire are going to try to answer those in ways that roll back everything that we're trying to build. And so on the other side of the PRO Act and fighting for power as workers and I think this is what's part of what's good about the bargaining for the common good type movement um, has to be fighting for our ability to maintain life on this planet in anything like a dignified and a free way. And we are the only people that will come up with those answers. Wow. Well, Femi Taiwo, Mindy Iser, and Zach Hirschman, thank you all very much. Thank you. This was so fun. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. Femi Taiwo is a professor of philosophy at Georgetown University, where he focuses on social political philosophy and ethics. Mindy Iser is an organizer in the labor movement and a member of DSA's Democratic Socialist Labor Commission Steering Committee. Zachary Hirschman is an organizer in Pennsylvania 
and a member of Put People First PA. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that the emancipation of the working class must be the work of the working class itself. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Izzy Olive. Our senior advisor is Fia Rio Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, same on Facebook, and do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a nice review. Those reviews ostensibly help introduce us to new listeners, so that's great. But what I would really love you to do is tell your friends, people you know in real life, on the internet, about the show, why you like the show, why they will like the show, and thus should listen to it. Please make propaganda for us, and do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this podcast up and running strong, even a few bucks a month is huge.